Section 13. The Stranger, Democracy, the Seventh-day Adventist, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 35 through 37. The Stranger. It was a comfort in that sweltering heat to get out of the city. The missionary stepped out of the launch in which he had dropped leisurely down the river and comfortably settled himself in the chair which was waiting for him at the water's edge. He was carried through the village by the riverside and began to ascend the hill. It was an hour's journey along a pathway of broad stone steps under fir trees, and now and again you caught a delightful glimpse of the broad river shining in the sun amid the exultant green of the paddy fields. The bearers went along with a swinging stride. The sweat on their backs shone. It was a sacred mountain with a Buddhist monastery on the top of it, and on the way up there were rest houses where the coolies set down the chair for a few minutes and a monk in his grey robe gave you a cup of flowered tea. The air was fresh and sweet. The pleasure of that lazy journey, the swing of the chair was very soothing, made a day in the city almost worth while, and at the end of it was his trim little bungalow where he spent the summer, and before him the sweet-scented night. The mail had come in that day and he was bringing on letters and papers. There were four numbers of the Saturday Evening Post and four of the Literary Digest. He had nothing but pleasant things to look forward to, and the usual peace, a peace, as he often said, which passeth all understanding, which filled him whenever he was among these green trees, away from the teeming city, should long since have descended upon him. But he was harassed. He had had that day an unfortunate encounter, and he was unable, trivial as it was, to put it out of his mind. It was on this account that his face bore a somewhat peevish expression. It was a thin and sensitive face, almost ascetic, with regular features and intelligent eyes. He was very long and thin, with the spindly legs of a grasshopper, and as he sat in his chair, swaying a little with the motion of his bearers, he reminded you, somewhat grotesquely, of a faded lily. A gentle creature, he could never have hurt a fly. He had run across Dr. Saunders in one of the streets of the city. Dr. Saunders was a little grey-haired man, with a high colour and a snub nose which gave him a strangely impudent expression. He had a large sensual mouth, and when he laughed, which he did very often, he showed decayed and discoloured teeth. When he laughed his little blue eyes wrinkled in a curious fashion, and then he looked the very picture of malice. There was something fawn-like in him. His movements were quick and unexpected. He walked with a rapid trip as though he were always in a hurry. He was a doctor who lived in the heart of the city among the Chinese. He was not on the register, but someone had made it his business to find out that he had been duly qualified. He had been struck off, but for what crime, whether social or purely professional, none know, nor how he had happened to come to the east and eventually settle on the China coast, but it was evident that he was a very clever doctor and the Chinese had great faith in him. He avoided the foreigners and rather disagreeable stories were circulated about him. Everyone knew him to say how do you do to, but no one asked him to his house nor visited him in his own. When they had met that afternoon, Dr. Saunders had exclaimed, "'What on earth has brought you to the city at this time of year?' "'I have some business that I couldn't leave any longer,' answered the missionary, "'and then I wanted to get the mail.' "'There was a stranger here the other day asking for you,' said the doctor. "'For me?' cried the other with surprise. "'Well, not for you particularly,' explained the doctor. "'He wanted to know the way to the American mission. "'I told him, but I said he wouldn't find anyone there.' He seemed rather surprised at that, so I told him that you all went up to the hills in May and didn't come back till September. 
"'A foreigner?' asked the missionary, still wondering who the stranger could be. "'Oh, yes, certainly.' The doctor's eyes twinkled. Then he asked me about the other missions. I told him the London mission had a settlement here, but it wasn't the least use going there as all the missionaries were away in the hills. After all, it's devilish hot in the city. "'Then I'd like to go to one of the mission schools,' said the stranger. "'Oh, they're all closed,' I said. "'Well, then I'll go to the hospital.' "'That's well worth a visit,' I said. "'The American hospital is equipped with all the latest contrivances. "'Their operating theater is perfect.' "'What is the name of the doctor in charge?' "'Oh, he's up in the hills.' "'But what about the sick?' "'There are no sick between May and September,' I said. "'And if there are, they have to put up with the native dispensers.' "'Dr. Saunders paused for a moment. "'The missionary looked ever so slightly vexed. "'Well?' he said. "'The stranger looked at me irresolutely for a moment or two. "'I wanted to see something of the missions before I left,' he said. "'You might try the Roman Catholics,' I said. "'They're here all the year round.' "'When do they take their holidays, then?' he asked. "'They don't,' I said. "'He left me at that. "'I think he went to the Spanish convent.' The missionary fell into the trap, and it irritated him to think how ingenuously he had done so. He ought to have seen what was coming. "'Who was this, anyway?' he asked innocently. "'I asked him his name,' said the doctor. "'Oh, I'm Christ,' he said. The missionary shrugged his shoulders, and abruptly told his rickshaw boy to go on. It had put him thoroughly out of temper. It was so unjust. Of course they went away from May to September. The heat made any useful activity quite out of the question, and it had been found by experience that the missionaries preserved their health and strength much better if they spent the hot months in the hills. A sick missionary was only an encumbrance. It was a matter of practical politics, and it had been found that the Lord's work was done more efficiently if a certain part of the year was set aside for rest and recreation. And then the reference to the Roman Catholics was grossly unfair. They were unmarried. They had no families to think of. The mortality among them was terrifying. Why, in that very city, of fourteen nuns who had come out to China ten years ago, all but three were dead. It was perfectly easy for them, because it was more convenient for their work to live in the middle of the city and to stay there all the year round. They had no ties. They had no duties to those who were near and dear to them. Oh, it was grossly unjust to drag in the Roman Catholics. But suddenly an idea flashed through his mind. What rankled most was that he had left the rascally doctor, you only had to look at his face all puckered with malicious amusement to know he was a rogue, without a word. There certainly was an answer, but he had not had the presence of mind to make it, and now the perfect repartee occurred to him. A glow of satisfaction filled him, and he almost fancied that he had made it. It was a crushing rejoinder, and he rubbed his very long thin hands with satisfaction. "'My dear sir,' he ought to have said, our Lord never in the whole course of his ministry claimed to be the Christ. It was an unanswerable snub, and thinking of it, the missionary forgot his ill-humor. Democracy It was a cold night. I had finished my dinner, and my boy was making up my bed while I sat over a brazier of burning charcoal. Most of the coolies had already settled themselves for the night in a room next to mine, and through the thin matchboarding of the wall that separated us I heard a couple of them talk. Another party of travellers had arrived about an hour before, and the small inn was full. Suddenly there was a commotion, and going to the door of my room to look out, I saw three sedan chairs enter the courtyard. They were set down in front of me, and from the first stepped out a stout Chinese of imposing aspect. He wore a long black robe of figured silk, lined with squirrel, and on his head a square fur cap. He seemed taken aback when he saw me at the door of the principal guest-chamber, and turning to the landlord addressed him in authoritative tones. 
It appeared that he was an official, and he was much annoyed to find that the best apartment in the inn was already taken. He was told that but one room was available. It was small, with pallets covered with tumbled straw lining the walls, and was used, as a rule, only by coolies. He flung into a violent passion, and on a sudden arose a scene of the greatest animation. The official, his two companions, and his bearers exclaimed against the indignity which it was sought to thrust upon him, while the landlord and the servants of the inn argued, expostulated, and entreated. The official stormed and threatened. For a few minutes the courtyard, so silent before, rang with the angry shouts. Then, subsiding as quickly as it began, the hubbub ceased and the official went into the vacant room. Hot water was brought by a bedraggled servant, and presently the landlord followed with great bowls of steaming rice. All was once more quiet. An hour later I went into the yard to stretch my legs for five minutes before going to bed, and somewhat to my surprise I came upon the stout official, a little while ago so pompous and self-important, seated at a table in the front of the inn with the most ragged of my coolies. They were chatting amicably, and the official quietly smoked a water-pipe. He had made all that to do to give himself face, but having achieved his object was satisfied, and feeling the need of conversation had accepted the company of any coolie without a thought of social distinction. His manner was perfectly cordial, and there was in it no trace of condescension. The coolie talked with him on an equal footing. It seemed to me that this was true democracy. In the East, man is man's equal in a sense you find neither in Europe nor in America. Position and wealth put a man in a relation of superiority to another that is purely adventitious, and they are no bar to sociability. When I lay in my bed I asked myself why in the despotic East there should be between men an equality so much greater than in the free and democratic West, and was forced to the conclusion that the explanation must be sought in the cesspool, for in the West we are divided from our fellows by our sense of smell. The working man is our master, inclined to rule us with an iron hand, but it cannot be denied that he stinks. None can wonder at it, for a bath in the dawn when you have to hurry to your work before the factory bell rings is no pleasant thing, nor does heavy labor tend to sweetness. And you do not change your linen more than you can help when the week's washing must be done by a sharp-tongued wife. I do not blame the working man because he stinks, but stink he does. It makes social intercourse difficult to persons of a sensitive nostril. The matutinal tub divides the classes more effectually than birth, wealth, or education. It is very significant that those novelists who have risen from the ranks of labor are apt to make it a symbol of class prejudice, and one of the most distinguished writers of our day always marks the rascals of his entertaining stories by the fact that they take a bath every morning. Now the Chinese live all their lives in the proximity of very nasty smells. They do not notice them. Their nostrils are blunted to the odors that assail the Europeans, and so they can move on an equal footing with the tiller of the soil, the coolie, and the artisan. I venture to think that the cesspool is more necessary to democracy than parliamentary institutions. The invention of the sanitary convenience has destroyed the sense of equality in men. It is responsible for class hatred much more than the monopoly of capital in the hands of the few. It is a tragic thought that the first man who pulled the plug of a water-closet with that negligent gesture rang the knell of democracy. The Seventh-Day Adventist he was a big man, and his bones were well covered. He gave you the impression that he had put on flesh since he bought his clothes, for they seemed somewhat tight for him. He always wore the same things, a blue suit, evidently bought ready-made in a department store, the lapel decorated with a small American flag, a high starched collar, and a white tie on which was a pattern of forget-me-nots. His short nose and pugnacious chin gave his clean-shaven face a determined look. 
His eyes, behind large gold-rimmed spectacles, were large and blue, and his hair receding on the temples, lank and dull, was plastered down on his head, but on the crown protruded a rebellious cock's feather. He was travelling up the Yangtze for the first time, but he took no interest in his surroundings. He had no eye for the waste of turbulent waters that was spread before him, nor for the colours, tragic or tender, which sunrise and sunset lent the scene. The great junks with their square white sails proceeded stately down the stream. The moon rose, flooding the noble river with silver and giving a strange magic to the temples on the bank among a grove of trees. He was frankly bored. During a certain part of the day he studied Chinese, but for the rest of the time he read nothing but a New York Times three months old and the parliamentary debates of July 1915, which heaven knows why happened to be on board. He took no interest in the religions which flourished in the land he had come to evangelize. He classed them all contemptuously as devil-worship. I do not think he had ever read the Analects of Confucius. He was ignorant of the history, art, and literature of China. I could not make out what had brought him to the country. He spoke of his work as a profession which he had entered as a man might enter the civil service, and which, though it was poorly paid, he complained that he earned less than an artisan, he wanted notwithstanding to make a good job of. He wanted to increase his church membership. He wanted to make his school self-supporting. If ever he had had a serious call to convert the heathen, there was in him no trace of it now. He looked upon the whole matter as a business proposition. The secret of success lay in the precious word organization. He was upright, honest, and virtuous, but there was neither passion in him nor enthusiasm. He seemed to be under the impression that the Chinese were very simple people, and because they did not know the same things that he did, he thought them ignorant. He could not help showing that he looked upon himself as superior to them. The laws they made were not applicable to the white man, and he resented the fact that they expected him to conform to their customs. But he was not a bad fellow. Indeed, he was a good-humoured one, and so long as you did not attempt to question his authority, there is no doubt that he would have done everything in his power to serve you. End of section 13. Recording by Nick Number.